Um, we're in a series on the book of John, and now we're at one of the most well-known stories in the book of John. This involves Lazarus. We talked about the first part last week. I have to review just a little bit, but we're talking about uh, Jesus when he did this famous, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now, it's a large passage, and I'm going to read it, so hang in there. It's John chapter 11, verses 18 to 44. You can follow along with your Bible on your phone or just listen and as we, as we go over this. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and go out quickly, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So we have this incredible story. It's part of a larger narrative, so let me catch you up on it. We talked about this last week, but we have Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. The scriptures are clear that Jesus loves this family. There is a devotion to this family, and, and it's, the, the love is reciprocated. They love him, and he loves them. Jesus and his disciples had been doing ministry right there around Jerusalem near Bethany, and the people there, the leaders especially, tried to kill him. So they said it's not his time, so they went out across the Jordan River, and ministered there. When La- and that's where they were when Lazarus got sick, and he gets really sick. And Martha and Mary send a messenger, a runner, to Jesus to let Jesus know, hey, the one you love is sick. 
Can you come back? Can you help us? Jesus receives this message, and he says, this is not a sickness that leads to death, but rather is a sickness that will glorify my Father. Jesus hears this, hears this, this, this need, and he continues to minister for two more days instead of going to Bethany where Lazarus is dying. And when we read that Lazarus has died, Jesus says, okay, now we need to go to Bethany. You know, we have that back and forth with the disciples. Lord, they're going to kill us there. Jesus says, yeah, but we're going back. Lazarus has just fallen asleep. And then they're thinking, oh, he's just asleep. You know, the disciples are uh, sometimes really slow to understand, which is just like us. And Jesus finally tells them, no, he's dead. This is about the glory of God. And the disciples, especially Thomas, says, well, then we'll go and die with him. A powerful statement. And we're going to see two things as we go through this. I'm not outlining it per se. I just want you to be looking. You'll see these things as we go along. We're going to see the person of Jesus. That is, Jesus teaching who he is. And we're going to see the purpose of Jesus. That is, why has he come? Or why does he do what he does? It's, it's throughout this whole passage interwoven together. There's no like necessarily point one and point two. But we see these things happening. And so when someone dies in that day, the Jews had a 30-day mourning period. Uh, but the first seven days were considered the days of intense mourning, and people would gather. And then the last three weeks would be more of a personal, private mourning uh, on your own. So there was a crowd there. That's why there's a crowd there. They've come to mourn with them. It would be very noisy. If you've ever seen a Middle East to this day, a Middle Eastern funeral or anything like that, there's, it's loud. It's very loud. The weeping, the mourning is, is, is loud. And so Martha hears that Jesus is coming. So she goes out, and we have, um, in a sense, a very powerful conversation. Last week, I mentioned what a, a, a tomb would have looked like. It's a cave, because they, they can't afford to just bury individual graves. And so let me just show you an artist's rendering of that. That's about what it would look like. If you see, if you remember last week, I showed you what they, we, they called an ossuary. It's a bone box. And they would lay the body on that spot there where you can see the body wrapped. And generally, it was not wrapped tightly. It was, it was very loose, almost like a bag, right? And they would just tie up the end so that they could, when the body, oh, this gets into that stuff, right? So that when the body has fully decomposed and it's just bones, they would wait about a year, they could just take this bag and then empty into the bone box so they don't touch the bones. Hopefully, that's what they wanted because you, you become unclean if you touch the bone. So you see in this picture, there's numerous bone boxes in little niches in the wall, and that's where the body was laid. That's what it would look like. This is what the outside would look like. This was very common, evidently, in that day. There would be a stone. They would roll, just like Jesus' tomb, but they did this all the time. Uh, they would seal tombs like that. And so that's what we're looking at. That's what we're seeing. And then Martha, because a lot of commentators think that Jesus is probably by where the tomb is. Because when Mary goes out, oh, she's going to the tomb. Why would they think she's going to the tomb? Because she's going in the right direction to the tomb. Everyone knows where the tomb is. So Jesus is probably there, close to the tomb. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you, all right? So here, you see this right at the very beginning. We talked about this last week, too, just a reminder. There's this sense of accusation, Lord, if you'd have come, because they can count the days, right? They know. We asked him. He didn't show up for four days. It's only a two-day journey. He waited for two days. And again, here we go. 
get into their shoes. Get into their shoes. And, and unfortunately, the hard thing is to get into their shoes, we have to grapple with some uncomfortable stuff. We have to grapple with tragedy. We have to grapple with death. We have to grapple with that feeling. My brother, my brother, you didn't come. You didn't come. We love you. You love us. What possible thing could you be doing to not come right away? And so Martha has this, there's this sense of accusation. Her first thought is the past. Why did you take so long? And if we're going to do the difficult work of thinking about this, we have to deal with the painful things. And if this reminds you of painful things, I am sorry. But you don't have to be an expert in first century history or anything like that. Stop for a second and imagine what it would be like for two sisters to try to nurse their dying brother to help health while waiting on Jesus to get there, only to see him not show up. I mean, there's no ICU. There's no electricity. They're trying to keep their brother alive. I don't know if you've been around death. But death very often is very ugly. Dignity goes out the window. We don't know what kind of illness this is, but evidently it seems to be a sudden illness. And if you get a sudden illness that falls upon you and kills you within a few days or a week or so, it is almost always a very violent illness with high fever, a lot of agony. And his sisters saw all of this. This is how we understand how they feel. They saw all of this up close. While looking out the window and trying to figure out, where's Jesus? You know, the runner returns. Did you tell him? Yes, I told him. He said, this is a sickness that doesn't lead to death. And then he started teaching again. Meanwhile, their their brother... He's writhing, he's groaning, his fever's growing, he's vomiting, can't keep fluid down, struggling to breathe. This is what they saw. This is what they lived with, waiting for Jesus. So to understand, I mean, it's, you can see from Martha's point of view, this is a legitimate question. Lord, if you had come, you could have healed him. We know you can heal. And we said the one you love is sick. So we can understand their point. Where were you? Because we get those times, right? God, don't you care? You can see it kind of in her accusation. Jesus, it's like you didn't care. Don't you care? For some of you, your past is a real struggle concerning the, who the truth of God, the truth of who God is and the truth of who Christ is, and it's a difficult question. And if we're going to be honest as followers of Jesus Christ, and and I mean, one of the things we want to do here at First Church is we want to deal with the difficult questions. We don't want to sugarcoat them. We don't want to constantly be telling you how to find your best life. We don't want to constantly be telling you, you know, if you do this, God will bless you. You'll be so blessed. I mean, there's truth to that, but here's the problem. There's suffering too. We have to acknowledge that. We, We have to see that. 
We never want to shy away from this question. How can God be loving? And I've experienced what I've experienced in my past. How does a loving God let that happen? And for many people, what has happened has defined you. It's become a kind of an identity. And we can't reconcile a loving God with what is behind us. If there's any kind of abuse in your background, if there's any kind of neglect in your background, if there's any type of darkness in your background, the question is there, where were you, God? If you're so good, where were you? If you're so kind, where were you? If you're for me and not against me, where were you? And that is, that's what prompts Martha's statement. That's where she's coming from. If you'd been there, my brother would not have died. And so it's, in a sense, a a complaint about a seeming lack of concern. And yet she still adds a note of belief in verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, you can struggle with that because, I mean, it's a note of belief, but also is it also kind of one of those pat things we tend to say when you don't know what to say? Because we know, we know she has no clue. Right up until the last moment, it never enters her mind that her brother is going to be raised from the dead. It doesn't even enter into her mind. Because when Jesus says, move the stone, she, she objects. See, so we know she's not thinking that. And it could seem like a bit of a religious platitude, kind of what you're supposed to say rather than what you're feeling. And we all do that from time to time. It's kind of like a Christian stoicism. Things are tough, but I'm trusting him, even though really you're in agony and you can't figure out why God is allowing this to happen. Or you begin to wonder if he really cares. Or saying these little sayings that are true, but they're kind of trite. And you kind of go, what do they mean? I read on Facebook one time, the bread of life never gets stale. I'm not sure if I understand that. I'm not sure if I understand the point. It seems just a little, you know, especially when you're struggling with things, that seems a little trite, and it seems a little pat, right? It seems like, oh, I got this good one. I'll TikTok it, right? The bread of life never gets stale. Yum, yum, yum. What? Right? I mean, you ever see those things sometimes? And I'm not against bumper stickers. I don't have, I don't, I don't have any Christian bumper stickers on my car because if I ever do something stupid in my car, I don't want anyone to know I'm a Christian, right? So I just kind of keep that on the DL when I'm driving, right? But here's the thing. You see sometimes these ones, God is my co-pilot. Really? Is that what you want? Turn left. You know, like your version of GPS? That's crazy. Jesus is never a slogan. We have to be careful about that. And I'm, there's, sometimes there's great stuff on Facebook. Wow, that's a stretch. Sometimes, yeah, maybe. Instagram, you know, maybe, yeah. And I mean, on bumper stickers. Sometimes it's good, it's good stuff. I, I mean, I'm not criticizing it, but we have this tendency to just rely on these little pat things that we say and not really voice what we're really feeling. And so Jesus is going to kind of push back on her. And I love this because he's teaching now. He's teaching who he is and what his purpose is. And he said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? She gives the, the, the orthodox, the right theological answer. Your brother rise again. Yes, I know on the last day. Because you know what she's thinking is, I know that's going to happen, but that doesn't help me right now. 
That doesn't help me right now. When my dad died, you know, somebody just said, man, you're going to see him again. And I thought, you know, that's somewhat of a comfort. But right now, this hurts, right? And I appreciate the, the thought behind that. But it doesn't help me right now. I'm in, I, I'm in turmoil. I'm str- you know, it doesn't help me in the moment. And so she's kind of saying, Jesus, I know that. I know he's going to rise again. I know the correct answer, right? It's like in this little Sunday school class with children, and they say, what's furry, eats nuts, and has a bushy little tail? And the kid goes, sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. Right? Right? Because we know what the right answers are. And she's given the right answer. And Jesus is trying to teach her here, and she's not understanding the point. She's offering, you know, the the spiritual thing. Yes, someday in the future, he will rise. I understand that. At the general, way off, he will rise. And see, what she's saying is true. But she's she's not seeing what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is taking the past, your brother has died, and the future, your brother will live again, and he's pulling him into the moment. He's saying, no, you don't understand this. This is going to happen right now. And Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I love this passage. I love this part here because there's there's so much nuance going on here that's very important for us. Jesus is making this astounding statement. He's saying, Martha, that resurrection you're looking, off, looking for in the far-off future, it's right now. It's available now. I'm the resurrection. And he says it in the present tense. I am at this moment standing before you, the resurrection, the living embodied resurrection, right in front of you. You're looking into my eyes. And all, that, all the life that that resurrection you look forward to, he says, it's, I'm the life. It's available now. It's available now. You can have it right now. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And I love this because her answer, you know, if you notice, her answer is like, yes, and this is what I believe. Why? Because what she's saying is, and I love her truthfulness, I'm not quite sure if I understand what you're saying, but here's what I believe. Here's what I say is true. For each one of us, the past has shaped us and possibly messed us up in some ways. And he's going to bring life out of that past. And the future that we hope for someday, he's saying, I can bring that life into that right now. Jesus is inviting us into a life that is right now, not ruined by the past and not way off in the future. Right this moment, he is the resurrection. The Greek word there is anastasis. It means the rising up out of the state of being dead. And he says, I'm the life. Guess what word that is, right? Zoe. Zoe. Not bios. He's saying, not bios. Bios is that Greek word for just eating and drinking and breathing and, and, and doing things and functioning. Just being alive. That's bios. Zoe, a life with meaning, a life with purpose, a life that is greater than you are. 
He's saying, that's what I'm offering you right now. Right now. Jesus is pushing Martha with his divinity. Martha, I'm God. I can do anything. Trust me in this pain. You may not understand what God is doing in your life right now. And he's saying, trust me in this pain. Trust me in this pain. And he's giving us here, we're seeing an example of how we could do that. Because she says, I'm doing the best I can. I believe you're the Christ. Right? I believe you are the Son of God who's coming into the world. I believe that. And so next, we see Mary. She comes out from that comes out. The people see this, they follow. And Jesus is going to teach Mary, and he's going to teach her in a whole different way, even though it's almost the exact same situation. Verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing, Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Interesting here, Jesus doesn't say anything. He just breaks down and weeps. He's troubled. He gave way to such distress. The word for deeply moved is uh, this idea that it strikes to your core, and a a big part of that is that you get angry about it. There's there's this idea of anger and trouble. And uh, And the idea there of the word trouble is that you're so troubled, you tremble and shake. You almost lose control of yourself. So angry, so upset, so sad. It's like if you've ever been greeted with news of a tragedy, you can find it hard to stand. And this hits Jesus right then and right there. When we see tragedy, when we see death, when we see the horrors that sin has inflicted on this world, and let's be honest, it's our sin too, we see the toll that it takes. We see within us, the potential for also being someone who does evil. I was just thinking about this. I, I love uh, uh, Sufjan Stevens. In one of his older albums, he has a song called John Wayne Gacy. It's a song about John Wayne Gacy, who was a murderer and, uh, um, and a pedophile. And he sometimes hid for a while at least the bodies under the floorboards of his house. Um, when he was caught, they opened the floorboards and found some of the people that he'd killed. And, and Sufjan Stevens, he sings this. Uh, it's just such a crazy thing, to, a song. And he says, in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look under the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. And here in this moment, we see Jesus showing his humanity, his anger in the face of the ravages of sin, when we endure horrible, difficult things, we can know we have a God who hates what has happened. Who hates what has happened. You think about this. What's your deepest hurt? What's your deepest fear? What is deep in your soul? He knows your pain. He has felt it. 
Jesus comes to us. And, and I know we've talked about this a number of times. It's so important. Jesus comes to us and he says, I know how it feels. I know betrayal. I know those things. I know how it feels. I know this tragedy. I know how it feels. What a comfort. What a tremendous thought that is. Here is the difference in Jesus' approach to Martha and to Mary. Here's what he's teaching them. To Martha, he's teaching her, I am God. I am the resurrection and the life. My divinity is right here on display. And to Mary, he's saying, I'm a man. I'm a human being. And this breaks my heart. Imagine, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few minutes, but the pain of these two sisters and of the people and of this love relationship that he has, it breaks him down. His humanity comes out, and he weeps. He weeps. This is called, if you're ever interested in it, this God and man, it's called the hypostatic union. That's a theological term for it. That somehow Jesus is God and man at the same time. And that is impossible. But he is. And that's what makes him a God that is so different. He loves us. He cares for us. He knows how it feels. This book, the book of John, <clears throat> was written with the Greek world in mind. There are many references to Greek thought and Greek philosophy. Uh, from the very beginning, from the very first verses of John chapter 1, John does that. He says Jesus is the Logos. He takes this, this powerful uh, Greek philosophical term, Logos, and he applies it to Jesus. And the Greek philosophers, you know, they would often write about God, not about the gods on Olympus. I mean, they would write about them too, but not, they always had this idea that there is somewhere out there, there is this one all-knowing God who is above everything. And they would describe him with a Greek term, and, and that term was apatheia, all right? Apatheia, it's where we get the word apathy, but it's not quite like apathy as we have defined it. Apatheia means the total inability to feel emotion at all. They thought for God to feel sadness or for God to feel grief or joy would mean that somehow a person could have a power over God. A person could make God sad. A person could make God happy. A person could give God joy. And they said, that can't be true because he's God and they're so far below him. To bring him where they could do that is to lower God. And so they use this term, apathia, the inability to feel a powerful emotion. They thought it would be impossible for a person because God is so remote. He's isolated. He's passionless and without compassion. And look what Jesus is saying. We have a God who cares, who hurts, who angers, who feels. They're fighting. See, they're fighting this Greek thought. Jesus weeps. Why? Because of the pain of Mary and Martha on display. They have that ability. He has that ability. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
It's interesting here. He's, it says he's deeply moved again. Those words that he used before of that pain and trembling, he re that again. In the King James, it's, it's interesting. I can remember when I first read it as a kid one time, and it says, by this time, Lord, he stinketh, right? What they're trying, you know, they're trying to say is, is it's, it's, he's decomposing, God. He's decomposing. Their point is, is, this, is if you go in there and you look at him, he's not him anymore. It, things will be happening and wasting away, and it will smell horrible. Jesus, and it's almost like Martha saying, please don't do this to us. Please don't do this to us. This, this is not what we need. We don't need to smell this. We don't need you to pull the, the, the cloth away from his face. We don't need to see a disfigured look of our brother. We saw what it was like when he was sick, and it was horrific. And so she's trying as best she can to rebuke Jesus. Now, earlier, you know, I kind of mentioned, I think she, she might be giving religious platitudes. She, she said, well, I know whatever you ask for, God will do. And Jesus says, okay, move the stone. She says, oh, not that. Not that, right? Not that. We're... If you'd have been here, we wouldn't be in this situation. But we're four days in, Jesus. You know, there's some uh, first century writings that say that the Jews believed the spirit of the person would hover up to three days around the body. I think this is why Jesus, part of why Jesus waited. Make sure it's four days. Make sure he's dead. You know, this is not a princess bride kind of a thing. You know, this is not mostly dead means a little alive. That's not what's going on. Take that away. You guys are having too much fun, right? This is dead, dead. And, and, and just to dispel any ideas, even the Jewish idea, that, well, maybe if the Spirit's hanging around. No, the Spirit's gone, right? I, I remember years ago, a, a singer named Carmen did a little song about Lazarus what, what it would have been like, just imagining, you know, Lazarus leaves the body, he goes up, you know, and he's talking to Moses, and Moses said, I heard him, and he's talking to Abraham, and Abraham said, I saw a likeness of him, and Lazarus going, man, I saw him, I walked with him, I talked with him, he taught me, I heard his voice, and then in the song you hear, Lazarus, come forth, oh, that's his voice, I gotta go, fellas, he just calls him out, so he's dead, dead. He's been dead for four days. Martha, who said earlier, whatever you ask can happen, Jesus says, move the stone. Martha says, okay, that's a little bit too far. Again, I always want to highlight here, which is so important, Jesus' tenderness with doubt. What does he say to her when she says that? She's basically telling him, no. Does he rebuke her? Mm -mm. Does he say, well, you know what? You just ruined it. I was going to do something nice for you, and this is what you do to me? No. No, he doesn't. He just says, didn't I tell you if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? See, the stunning aspect of this story is that we have evidence that she really wasn't believing very well. She had not thought of this. And Jesus is like, that's okay. It's just, you know, my favorite line from, the, from, from the, the father of the son, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? It's, it's not the quality of your faith. It's the quality of who you have your faith in. 
Even a little bit of faith, a mustard seed of faith, Jesus says. A tiny bit of faith. He says, I can work with that. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. All right, so he, there he is. He's not a mummy. It's not like, you know, one of the things in money. Where it's it's like, a, like a bag, and they've tied the top, or they've tied, you know, and they've tied the bottom so that it's, a, in a sense, just a sealed cloth bag, kind of, with some cloth laid over it. And so he's standing there, and he's like, let him out. I imagine Lazarus is thinking the same thing. Get me out of this. This is freaking me out, right? One of the interesting things is a little later, and we're going to talk about this next week, This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. It says in verse 53, I'll just read it to you. From that day on, they made plans. They said that this is it, to put him to death. And, And they wanted to kill Lazarus too. They want to get rid of anything that points to Jesus. You know, Jesus knew Lazarus would die again someday, right? This didn't cure the problem. He knew to cure the problem, he was going to have to die. He's going to have to die for us in our place. And this is something actually we all know intuitively, right? Real love involves sacrifice. That's just automatic. That's just automatic. Our culture worships convenience, comfort, and privacy. And I'm I'm guilty of that too, right? I'm guilty of that too. Um. My wife likes to put the toaster in, in, a, in a drawer, right? I, I like the toaster out. And so I'll get a piece of bread and I'll go, that's too much work. I don't want to get that. And she just is like, you're kidding me. What you just did, you don't want to have the bread to- with to- as toast because it's down in there. You have to get it out and plug it in and then put it away. And I'm like, exactly. That is exactly it. It's too much. It's too much work, right? Like I don't know when I was when I was at another church working as a youth pastor. We got when the first computers came out, and it was this heavy box that you take off. The screen was this big, right? And you plug that thing in, and I thought a megabyte of memory was unbelievable, right? It was just crazy. It would take five to ten minutes to boot up. All these Bing, 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 all this stuff going on. I'd be like, it's okay. This is so cool. Now, now I got, you know, with, the, with these new hard drives, I'm like, come on, it's been three seconds. What the heck? I think it's broken. Oh, I got to get a new one, right? It, 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 we're, we're just wedded. We love convenience, comfort, and privacy. That's what our culture has given us. And I just, my son and my daughter-in-law, one of them, just had a baby a week ago. And um, if you're a parent and you put your convenience and your comfort ahead of your child's convenience and comfort, your child will grow up needy and dysfunctional. If you only do what you want to do, you're doing the worst thing you can for that child. Because if you have a child, you can kiss goodbye your need for privacy, your need for convenience, and your comfort for many, many years. Trust me. This is what happens. 
You have to give up yourself. You have to die to those things so that they will live to do the best you can for them. And I know <laughs> this, is, this is terrible. I'm like a walking advertisement for not having kids. I had five kids. I had five kids. I love my kids. I loved raising my kids. It was awesome. It was hard at times. I don't want to sugarcoat it. But here's the thing that caught me the surprise by, the, by most, the most surprise, whatever. They grow up and they go out of the house and you're like, yes, yes. Baby, we don't have to worry about the kids being around. This is awesome. We can go do things. Blah, 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 blah. It never stops. They come back. Right? They come back. Not only that, they tell you when they're struggling, and you're like, oh, daddy will fix it, but daddy can't fix it anymore. Right? When they got a busted knee, I could, I could trick my kids into thinking that I had magical spit, and if I kissed their knee, it would be better. And the placebo effect kicks in, and they think it worked. They thought it worked. To this day, they'll tell you, it did work sometimes. I know it didn't, but they thought it did. Right? You can't do it when they're grown. You just sit home and pray and struggle with the thought of what they're going through and hurt for them and wish that you could go through it for them. That's what happens. Real love always includes sacrifice. It always includes sacrifice. It should not. I hear sometimes somebody object, why did Jesus have to go die on the cross? Because real love involves sacrifice. There's just no getting around it. He died for us. And he tells us why. Because of my great love for you. And that, when you grasp that, when you grapple with that, when you think about that, that changes the way you live in the present What do we do with this? For some of you, it's a struggle because of your past. Dark things have been done. Or dark things that we did. Some may be focused on the future. Someday this will happen. Someday I'll get this. Someday we'll have this. And then we live for that. But Jesus, what is he doing? He's jerking Martha and Mary into the present and us into the present. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the Zoe. Right here, right now, today. And he's saying, let this change you. So what do we live for right now? Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What does that mean when we start saying, I believe that? There's no room for petty things convenience and comfort and privacy sometimes are not there. It involves a radical reordering of our priorities. What am I living for? What is the purpose of my life? What do I want to accomplish on this earth? And Jesus says, accomplish this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and might. And love your neighbor as yourself. He says, that's what I want you to do. This is what he's teaching them. He's teaching them that he's God. He's teaching them that he's man. He's teaching them that he works. And he, he works through us. He walks with us. He teaching, he's teaching us that your suffering is never wasted. The times that you suffer, 
can be used and reflected back to the glory of God. It doesn't mean we want to suffer, but it means that when we do suffer, God uses it. He walks with us. When you cry, God cries. When you laugh, He laughs. He has great joy in you. He has great love for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I, I know I say that every week when I pray. But God, we thank you for your word. These are the words of life. And Peter said, where else would we go? Where else would we go? These are the words of life. And so, Father, help us to embrace them, to embrace all of it, to understand what you're doing on this earth. Lord, we want to be a part of this resurrection. We want to be a part of this life that is going on right here, right now, in the 22nd century, 2022. Lord, help us, help us to see you working and to follow closely after you. In Jesus' name, amen.